With that, I would like to read our passage for this morning as Pastor Bill will continue to preach from the book of Daniel. And our passage is Daniel chapter 4, verses 24 to 37. And I'll be reading it for us. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord, the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High. Oh, let's go back one slide. I apologize. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation, all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. And before we dive into the text today, we've been lamenting all morning. But before we dive into the text, I want to join my voice as senior pastor, along with Luke's and with the rest of the sessions, to say that what took place in Atlanta is just wrong. There is no excuse for it. There's no minimizing of it. That it is based in racism, that it targeted the Asian American community and targeted Asian American women in particular. And it's just wrong. It's not okay. It's not okay with me. It's not okay with session. And it's not okay with our church. 
That's part of why we sent a letter out earlier this week. It was to start to give a sense of some of the ways that the pastors and elders are processing this, as well as a way of maybe helping us as a community to walk through this time. I want to say that we hear the pain. At the same time, we can't imagine what that's like for these families who have lost individuals uh, so suddenly. We want to say that we hear the pain of how this is affecting the Asian American community, but also the other minority communities in our country. And we recognize that it's impacting us as a community. It's impacting renewal. And I use the word us very intentionally. It's bringing up experiences for many of us. I use the word us because this is my family. Sorry. You are my family. You're my brothers and my sisters. And therefore, what touches you also touches me. I know that it can't to the same extent. I know that uh, I, I don't feel it in the same kinds of ways. But this is part of what it means to be family, that what hurts one part of the body hurts all of the rest of the body as well. Now, I understand, the elders understand, that not everyone in the church is in the same place. That as a church, we're not all thinking or feeling the same things. Some of us are feeling angry. Some of us are scared. Some of us are numb. Some of us don't really know what we're thinking. Some of us aren't feeling a whole lot of anything at all. We're all in different places in our processing together, session included, and so we want to make room for that processing. We want to make room for that individually, and we want to make room for that processing as a community. Now, I've already benefited from that room sat down to write the letter and shared a little personally. I sat down to write the, the letter and I, I just stared at the page. I didn't know what even, where, how to start, where to go, what, what kinds of things to say. It took hours to write the draft. Sent that round to session, had a couple other voices from outside uh, weighing in really helpful voices. And then we were listening back and forth and we're responding and rewriting and rewriting and, and going through this long process which was really helpful for me. It's not just for me, I understand that, but it was really helpful for me to get a better sense of what this means to my brothers and sisters. I very much appreciate the people who have been willing to come alongside and say, this is a little bit of what this tastes like for me, what it feels like. What the session and other friends have extended to me, this process, is what we want to have as an entire community. Uh, the process of learning to be touched by what has touched someone else. And that's where the church does have something special to offer this world. Our world can and should denounce evil. It has to make it much harder to carry out hate. But our world does come up against uh, a limit because our world does not have the tools to change what's taking place inside of someone's heart. We can't take someone who hates and make them someone who loves. We can't take someone who hates and turn them into someone who sacrificially lays down their life for other people, for their sake, without looking for something back in return. We don't have the power to do that in the world, but Christ does that in his people. And then he takes those people and he puts them in a community, having broken down the dividing wall between people, between ethnicities and between cultures, and that's what we do have to offer this larger world. It's, it's important to denounce evil. It's just as important. It's more important to build something good. And that's our hope for Renewal Mainline. 
the session knows that that takes time. It takes conversations, it takes relationships, it takes this process. So we don't expect anyone to take the letter that we wrote and to read through it, and in the time it takes to read through it, to organize all the different thoughts and to uh, get their emotions in the same kind of place for all their... We don't expect that. You don't expect that when you read the Psalms. What do the Psalms do? They start you in a place that isn't necessarily where God is, but it is where you are. And they offer, just like Psalm 10 this morning, they offer words to help us process what we're experiencing, but they also issue an invitation to process. But they issue an invitation that moves in a direction. Almost all the Psalms end with a, a focus on God. And you realize that because they're giving you that end point, that there are a lot of other end points that you could have. And so it's important to say there is process and there is time, but it's also important for us to say, as a community, here's where we need to go. And so I want to offer the invitation again to say, let's take the time that we need to process through our responses. Let's do that together as a community, and let's do that in a way that really does see God's kingdom established that much more here on earth. If you're able to join in the Zoom fellowship, really urge you to do that. If not, and you'd still like to reach out to me, to one of the other pastor's elders, any one of us would love to have your, your, your phone call, your conversation, your email, and we'd love to be able to pray with you. To that end, let me pray now. Lord God, we are, as a nation, crying out to you. We're crying out in pain, we're crying out longing for justice, and we can cry those two things because we know, Lord, that you're a God who hears and you're a God who judges. Lord, that things that are unjust do not escape your notice and that you will settle everything righteously one day. And Lord, we cry out to you, make that day sooner than later. Lord, make us a community that is a haven for people. Lord, that as you comfort us, that we could comfort others. And Lord, make us a community that does also cry out for justice. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are picking back up in Daniel today, chapter 4, passage that I think actually does speak very well to this week. Chapter 4 is all about God humbling an arrogant king. It's something that ends very well for the king. It's good for Nebuchadnezzar, but it does raise the question, why is this good for you and why is it good for me? With everything that's going on in our world, with everything that has been going on throughout our lifetime, with everything that will go on beyond our lifetime, why is this important for us this morning? The Apostle Paul addresses that question in his letter to the Romans. In chapter 15, verse 4, he says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, if you take that, passage, that verse backwards, what's it saying? It says, do you want to have hope as you live in this world? It's offering hope, really tall order to promise in this world, to have hope as you live here. Real hope, not a fake hope that will later fall apart and then leave you that much more disappointed. If you want to have that kind of hope, then you need the encouragement of the scriptures. You need the encouragement that helps you endure while living here. That's what the scripture promises you. 
that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction to give us endurance and encouragement so that we might have hope. Really important commodity right now in, in scarce supply. What was written down from the past is to instruct us. It's to teach us. It assumes that we need to learn. It's to have a formative influence, to be the formative influence in how we think. Scripture very intentionally is trying to give us the lens, the, the perspective, the, the um, worldview through which we understand and interpret everything else in life. What does that mean for Daniel chapter 4? It means that when I read this, I have to make myself think, okay, this happened to Nebuchadnezzar, but it wasn't written down for Nebuchadnezzar. It was written down for me, for you and me, for us. In order to understand why it was written for us, it's helpful to go back to that first group of people who read this. They were the first audience for whom it was written, people who were used to living in a theocracy. That was their background, their history. In the nation of Israel, they lived under laws that God had given them. But there were people now who were facing a very different reality. And it was a reality that made them ask the question, what does our faith look like as we come into contact with people who are outside the borders of Israel? Either when we are in exile from our homeland, when we're no longer the dominant culture, or when we do live in Israel, but we're living as a vassal state and another empire, another nation is imposing its laws and its ways on us. What do we need to know? What instruction do we need? What teaching do we need to live out our faith with hope? How do we endure? How, do we, how are we encouraged when we're confronted with a more powerful social or na national force? And to that question, Daniel chapter 4 this morning says two things to us. First, you need to know that the powers in this world are not ultimate. And second, you need to know that they're not beyond rescue. They are not ultimate, and they're not beyond rescue. First, the powers of this world are not the most ultimate reality in the universe, even when they think so. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. We heard the interpretation of that dream earlier as Pastor Luke read the passage. Nebuchadnezzar told Daniel, verse 10, his dream. I'm going to read a longer section here so that you have the dream in your mind. He said to Daniel, I saw and behold a tree in the midst of, this, of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the air lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree, and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's. And let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. 
the sentences by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Now, we've already heard the interpretation of the dream in this message that Nebuchadnezzar himself is the tree whose top reaches heaven, whose branches are visible to the entire earth. That he's not only the most powerful, the ruler of the most powerful kingdom on earth, kingdom that shelters and provides for all the people on earth, but he's also the connecting point. His top reaches heaven. He's the connecting point between earth and heaven. He's the link between heaven and earth that is to rule here in a way that represents heaven's interests, that rules according to the way that God would rule. But Nebuchadnezzar has ignored heaven. He's not ruled in ways that please God, but he's thought too much of himself and his own power. You hear that judgment in the the words that come out to cut him down. The judgment that he's going to lose his sanity that he'll take on the mind of a mere beast, the judgment that he'll live like a beast, and eventually, verse 33, he'll even look like a beast. And that judgment is going to happen until what? Until he knows, verse 32, that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and that he gives it to whom he will. Until Nebuchadnezzar knows that the powers of this world owe their power to a greater power. They owe their power to God and not to themselves. In other words, what this judgment, this pronouncement of judgment is saying is that Nebuchadnezzar does not know this, not in a way that functionally controls what he thinks and does. He may have heard this, he may even have mouthed these words at times, but deep down in his heart, he does not believe this. Deep down, something else controls him. Something that he identifies at the end of the chapter when he says, verse 37, that those who walk in pride God is able to humble. He says that the root issue for him has been pride, something that he could not overcome on his own. Now, this is the first time that the word pride has been used in this passage. It's actually the first time that it's occurred in the book of Daniel, which is a little surprising, (laughs) given that in the last chapter, Nebuchadnezzar set up a 90-foot-tall image to himself and ordered everybody else to bow down to it on pain of death. You think, man, if that's not pride on steroids, I, I don't know what is. But he isn't described there as proud. In his dream, God does not accuse him. God does not say to him, you're proud. But by the time you get to verse 37 in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar sees clearly that the root issue for him is pride. That pride sums up his approach to life that it forms the core of how he thinks about himself and others, that it drives how he conducts himself. It's obviously dangerous. It's going to get you judged. But what does it look like? How do you tell if someone's proud? We throw this word around, but how do you know? More importantly, how do you tell if that kind of pride is inside of you? I mean, sure, if you go around setting up 90-foot-tall images and ordering all of us to bow down, we might have something to say to you. But what does it look like if you're not doing that? What does it look like if you're not sitting at the top of the most powerful empire of the world? What does it look like if you're sitting in your living room instead? Now, a key way to understand what this looks like is to see what Nebuchadnezzar did right before God's decree went out, 
Right before he lost his mind, verse 29, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And he said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And immediately, verse 31, while the words were still in his mouth, a voice came from heaven and said, The kingdom has departed from you. In other words, cut him down. Now, did you get the connection? There's something in what he said that triggered God's judgment. Something in what he said that shows he's proud. Some evidence that pride has him in its grip and that it controls what he says and does. He's out there on the rooftop. He's looking over Babylon. And according to everything that I have read, Babylon was amazing. It was magnificent. It's the home of the fabled Hanging Gardens. It was a city filled with building and renovation projects that Nebuchadnezzar had started. It was surrounded by a double wall to protect it. One of those walls was apparently so wide at the top, that's the narrow part, at the top you could drive two chariots by each other. It's a great city. But as Nebuchadnezzar looks out over it, he says two things that show that pride is ruling him. He says that all that he sees is the result of his mighty power, and it all exists for the glory of his majesty. This is what pride looks like. First, it takes sole credit for what you've done. It ignores the God who made you, ignores the God who keeps you alive, who gave you the gifts that you've used, who put you in a place and time that lets you use those gifts. Pride ignores all of that and says, is not this great, whatever this great is, is this not, is this not great which I have built by my mighty power. It sees no connection, no necessary connection between God and your power, between God and your accomplishments. That's the first thing that you need to see about pride, that it takes all the credit for what you've done. Second, pride sees yourself and your own glory as the primary endpoints toward which you bend your power. It assumes that the things that you have are to benefit you, that they are for the glory of your majesty. It assumes that you should use what you have for yourself, that you should give yourself the best life that you possibly can. It does not assume, it doesn't even consider that what you have has been given to you by God so that you can accomplish the things that he loves, that you would use what you have for the glory of his majesty. Pride neither relies on God or orients itself toward God. It's the expression of a life that says, I don't need God, and I don't owe him anything. It's the expression of an autonomous life. An autonomous life, which is utter insanity if you think about it. It's a life that did not give life to itself, that didn't birth itself, that didn't select its own gifts and abilities, that didn't surround itself with the resources that it has. It's a life that is completely dependent on so many other things, and yet it's a life that shuts all of that out, that says, I give myself everything that I need. I use what I have for my own reasons, because I am the most ultimate part of my world. I'm neither dependent or accountable to anything or anyone. That's insane. Actually, God says it's worse than insane. It's beast-like. 
It's a loss of your humanity. By rejecting your connection with God, you simultaneously reject being human like God made you to be. You cease living like his image, like his reflection, and you become like an animal. Now that was always true of Nebuchadnezzar. He's always had that beast inside of him. You get glimpses of this every now and then when someone crosses him, when he doesn't get his way. And then that beast that's been hiding in that human exterior comes out. He threatens to rip people apart, to dismember them, to destroy their houses, remove all trace and memory of them. He actually throws people into a furnace. He's responsible for the death of his guards who did throw other people into a furnace. The beast has always lived inside of him, but up till now he's been able to control it, to cloak it in human form. And what God does is take away his ability to do that. God took away the restraints, the things that let Nebuchadnezzar control his mind. And now that inner reality is fully exposed for everyone to see. That's God's indictment of Nebuchadnezzar. It's God's view of Babylon. Let that sink in for a moment. It's God's view of the most powerful, beautiful, cultured city of its day. He's saying at its heart, there was a subhuman beast. Someone who ruled there, but who didn't live or act as a human being. Who had lost his ability to be the image of God that he was made to be. Who did not reflect the glory of God and how he ruled because he rejected God. He didn't acknowledge God as God or take seriously that he had an obligation to God to hear from God and to obey God. At the heart of Nebuchadnezzar's inhumanity was his severed relationship with his maker. He worshiped and served himself and in doing that he no longer resembled what God meant humans to be. And that's the issue that has to be cured if there's to be any hope. If you ignore this, if you look around at all the beast-like things that beast-like people do, if you look at our inhumanity to other human beings, if you see those things but, if you, but ignore the source from which those things flow, that they come out of a person's disconnect with God, you have no real hope to offer someone you have no hope of offering them a fundamental internal transformation so that the beast inside of there is not simply controlled, it's not simply submerged, pushed underground, caged somehow. If you ignore that the evil we do to each other has its source in our rejection of God, in putting ourselves in his place as the most important center of our world, if you ignore that, then the best that you can do to s with someone is to say to them, do better. Control the beast. Make it behave. And if you don't, we will. That was not enough for Nebuchadnezzar. He heard Daniel's warning. He did better for 12 months. But then in this moment where he's off his guard, just couldn't control it anymore. Why? Because it was still inside. It was still who he was at his core. And you hear what I'm saying right now. You hear that I'm not talking about religion. I'm not talking about going to church. I'm not talking about volunteering at church. I'm not talking about doing all the church kind of things. That will not produce 
internal transformation. I'm talking about needing a fundamental internal reorientation where you are reconnected to God because he gives you a life that you didn't have. And the life that he gives you now reflects how he lives his life. That's the real solution to our very real problem. But if you, if you ignore the underlying cause of why we treat, mistreat each other the way that we do, and if you ignore the radical transformation that we all need, then you'll be able to do what? You'll be able to see the evil that comes out. You'll be able to name it, to trace its history and its origins, to study it, to denounce it, all the things that have to be done, not minimizing that. They're the things that we're doing regarding the shootings in Atlanta. You can go back into the scriptures. They're the things that Israel's prophets did regarding the sin of the Israelites. It's an important part of calling people and societies to repentance. But if you don't take that next step and tie the sin that you can see to an individual's or a society's rejection of God, all you've done is classify what kind of beast it is in front of you. And you'll have said to it, control yourself. You can call people out for being beasts. We should. We need to. We need to call ourselves out. We're not any different. But analysis does not have the power to change someone. Only God can make someone fully human inside and out when they've rejected him. Because only God can give you a heart for him when he didn't want one in the first place. And that's what ought to amaze you about this passage because it ought to amaze you about God. It's amazing that he would do this for any of us. We only catch a glimpse of each other's nature at this point in time. God sees the whole ugliness. He sees everything about me all at the same time, all at once. And he doesn't turn away from me, doesn't turn away from us. Instead, he moves toward us with transformation on his mind. And that's hopeful. God does not turn away from a frightening, threatening, dangerous monster called Nebuchadnezzar. Instead, he moves toward him. And he moves toward him to do two things. Number one, to say this far and no further, your power is not ultimate over this world. That's point one. But secondly, he comes to do for Nebuchadnezzar what Nebuchadnezzar cannot do for himself to remake him. And that's where real hope is. And that's the real hope we have to hold for ourselves. It's the real hope we have to hold for the world around us, the world that God has sent us to. So point two, the powers of this world are not beyond rescue. They're not beyond rescue because God is involved. Now, if you go back through this chapter, there are so many ways that God is involved, it's almost embarrassing. I'm only gonna race through them really quickly but invite you to go back this afternoon and meditate on how much God does in order to rescue this man. This man that many of us would just walk away from, run away from. Notice first, what does he do? He gives Nebuchadnezzar a dream. It's a dream that warns Nebuchadnezzar of what the future holds. It clearly spells out the coming danger of continuing to live in pride. That's an amazing God who would give him a warning. Second, in the dream, God spells out 